Good afternoon, and thank you so much for joining us here at GodsRedeemed.org, the website of the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ, where we are trying to do things in Bible ways to follow our God and to continue our service to Him. If you'd like to open your Bibles and follow along this afternoon, I invite you to do so by opening to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10, and we're going to read there a section of 10 or 11 verses in just a moment. While we continue to be separated from each other like we are at this time, we use it as an opportunity to still encourage each other and to still be mindful of one another. And the fact that you are interested in spiritual things and are tuning in to this particular uh, sermon tells us that you are concerned about spiritual things as well. I want to talk this afternoon about Christianity and the idea of hinting at Christianity. And I want us to use Deuteronomy 10 as a text, at least the, the second half of Deuteronomy chapter 10, to better understand five New Testament principles. You may say, well, wait a minute now. I thought the Old Testament was the Old Testament and the New Testament was the New Testament and that the two would never meet in the middle. I'm here today to suggest that, indeed, an understanding of the Old Testament is really fundamental to understanding the New Testament. I have some friends who really like the phrase that the Old Testament concealed and that the New Testament is revealed. And I like that concept that they both are about revealing the full revelation of God. And certainly on this particular occasion here in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we see that that is the case. Before we get to Deuteronomy chapter 10, I want us to understand Deuteronomy and its context. It's a great book to study uh, as a Bible study privately or in a group setting. It is, as you know, as good Bible students, the fifth and the final book of what we call the Pentateuch. These five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, contain a history, not only of the world, but of the Lord's people, of their bondage, of their exodus, and then of their preparation in going into the promised land. The name Deuteronomy starts with the idea of D-E-U, which is the idea of second or two, so that the name of the book is actually translated as second law. And even though that is the case, it's really a reiteration of the law to a new generation of the Lord's people. Another way of putting it is that Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, to a degree, were written for one particular generation that had just left those, uh, recording the, the account of those who had just left the Egyptian bondage, and then in preparation before going into the promised land, and of course, after the book of Deuteronomy comes the book of Joshua and then Judges, we see the history continue to be taught. In many ways, what is going on here in the book of Deuteronomy, and particularly in chapter 10, is that this is Moses's, one of Moses's at least, final speeches or final reiterations of God's commandments. 
And I want to read beginning in verse 12. And, you know, sometimes when we read our Bibles as they have been edited today, they have subtitles in them. And sometimes those subtitles or the breaks in the Bibles are, are not very uh, good. We look at them and say, well, I would not have separated that verse or that section there. In my Bible, it says the essence of the law. And I thought that that was actually fairly appropriate for the final 10 or 11 verses of Deuteronomy chapter 10. I want to read those verses rather quickly, and then I want to come back and make our five observations where Moses is, even though he is talking about the old law and the old way of doing things, is in many ways highlighting New Testament Christianity that was really a part of godly service from the very beginning. In verse 12, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command you today for your good. Indeed, heaven and the highest heavens belong to the Lord your God, also the earth with all that is in it. The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, he is your God, and has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. You know, it's a beautiful passage, those few verses there. And I truly believe that it is, again, appropriately called the essence of the law. Not just of the old law, which, of course, was put to death on the cross, as is taught in Colossians chapter 2 and Galatians chapter 3. But it is also the essence of the law that is universal to God and to Christianity today. I want to make five real quick observations from this text. And I want us to start with... This, that is, God requires something. You know, the idea that God would demand something of us or require something of us is foreign to many in the religious world. But we know in verse 12, for example, that the Lord requires something of us. If you like underlining words in your Bible, you might underline the word require of you because God requires something of you and requires something of me. This particular passage, if you're like me, reminds you of Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where there the prophet says, What does the Lord require of you but to love mercy, to do justly, and to walk humbly with your God? 
Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where that particular statement is made, as I paraphrase there, the idea of doing justly, loving mercy, walking humbly with your God. That is something that is required in the earliest part of the Old Testament. It is something that is required in the closing hours of what we call the Old Testament. And it is important for us in New Testament times as well. And for those of us who are Christians in patterning ourselves after the New Testament. I want to look at two passages here in the New Testament. What we'll do is we'll look at these Old Testament passages in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and then we'll advance forward and look at one or two or three passages in the New Testament, or maybe another passage in the Old Testament. But one of those is Luke chapter 12, and I want us to read there in verse 48, Luke 12, verse 48. This is a, a section of the book of Luke that uh, we are relatively familiar with. Luke chapter 12 is where Jesus says, I came to this earth to send fire on earth, for example, in verse 49. But if you back up one verse, he says, He did not know, yet committed these things with stripes, shall be beaten with few. For everyone to whom much is given, from him much will be, and then notice the word required. And to whom much has been committed of him, they will ask the more. Now, we skip the preceding 13 or 14 verses to establish the context, but this is a passage that we're using to rightly, I believe, point out that as believers in God, as those who have signed up to serve our God in heaven, we have requirements because we are given so very much. You and I have been blessed immensely, and we read in passages like this and in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, and in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that there is much expected of those to whom much is given. You know, another passage that came to mind as I was thinking about this particular concept is in Acts chapter 9, and we're familiar with Acts chapter 9. It's where Jesus appeared to Saul of Tarsus while he was on the road to Damascus. And this is where many people in the religious world get it wrong. And they suggest or teach uh, or profess uh, that Saul was saved on the road to Damascus. That is false. That is not true. We know it's not true because in Acts chapter 9, verse 6, Saul wasn't saved on the road. He was told to go into the city and find Ananias. And there he would be told what he should do, what he might do, or what he must do. And there's a difference between those words. There are things that we should do in life, but there are also things that we must do in life. And in fact, there are things that if you do not do them, you will either face legal prosecution or you'll face God in judgment or sometimes a combination of the two. But the fact is, is Deuteronomy 10 verse 12, what does the Lord your God require of you, tells me that there is something that is required of you and me in service to our God. That is true in the Old Testament. That is true in the New Testament as well. There's a second thing that I read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and that is obedience involves action. 
It requires us to actually do something to get up and to move in a direction that is improving for the cause of Jesus the Christ. And even though Jesus the Christ as a concept was still in the future in Deuteronomy chapter 10, the idea of being obedient in action to Jesus is present in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Drop down to verse 16. In verse 16, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. Circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. That's one of my favorite passages because it plays into so much of what Paul spoke about in his letters to Philippi, I'm sorry, to, to Colossae, to Rome, and to other places. I want to look at three passages in the New Testament that I think can help us to better understand this notion, this concept that obedience involves action. In Colossians chapter 2, and verse 11, this is kind of one of those go-to texts when we're talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament and how they intersect with each other. But in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 11, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made, and here's the key word, without hands, by putting off the body. What kind of circumcision is that? It's the circumcision of the heart that was referenced in Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Continue reading. Verse 12, you were buried with him in baptism in which you were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead and you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him having forgiven you all the trespasses. And then verse 14 is a key verse for those of us who understand we obey the precepts and, and, and the commandments of the New Testament Verse 14, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and taking it out of the way, nailed it to the cross. The fact is, is Colossians 2 tells me, among other things, and there are other things that are taught in Colossians 2 besides this one point, that obedience involves action. We've already pointed out that God has requirements, but secondly, we are suggesting that Deuteronomy chapter 10 is going as far as to say that that action or that, that obedience requires our action. In Romans chapter 2, in a parallel text, or one that seems to help us understand this concept a little bit greater, look, if you would, at the final verses of Romans chapter 2, where the point that Paul is getting at here is that to the first century Jewish Christians who were suggesting that they were better than their non-Jewish brethren, the Gentile Christians. He says nonsense. He says whether you are Jew or Gentile is no longer important. It is of no avail. And so he says in verse 28, he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. That is, you are faithful inwardly, and circumcision is that of, watch it, the heart, in the spirit and in the letter whose praise is not from men but from God. You see, so many of the early Christians in the first century who were of Jewish origin were seeking the praise of their fellow men as being better than the non-Jewish Christians. And Paul comes along and he says, I'm telling you as a Jewish Christian that that is not the case at all. I'm telling you that service to God 
in heart is more important than in the letter of the law or of following the old law, which is being done away with Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14 that we read just a moment or so ago. And then there's a third passage that is, is not a Pauline passage, but is one that I thought was really uh, appropriate for this concept. And that is near the end of the great sermon on the mountaintop, where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. And then again, if you like looking at words in your Bible or highlighting things, he who does the will of my father in heaven. We have to do something. We have to take action in order to be pleasing to our God. That is not just a New Testament concept, but rather it is a biblical concept. It is a worldview of godly service that lends to the importance of doing and acting on the things that God has required of us. That brings us to a third observation from Deuteronomy chapter 10. And that is something that we as Christians know is important for faithful service to God. But sometimes we forget because we get so tied up in the world around us. And that is that others are to be our focus. You know, if you were to uh, make a list of all the benefits of being a Christian or all of the Uh, hallmarks of being a part of the New Testament church, one of the things might very well be that others are the focus, and that is good in that it keeps me busy working for others, but it's also good because others help me when I am in my time of need. We weep with those who weep. We uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. Uh, Romans 12 teaches us We look out for the benefit of others, as we'll read here in just a moment in Galatians chapter 2. But I want to look at another passage uh, in the book of Philippians as we think about Deuteronomy 10 and verse 19. Therefore, thousands of years ago, Moses says, love the stranger. And the reason or the rationale is because you were once strangers in the land. You shall fear the Lord your God and you shall serve him. We'll come back and talk about verse 20 in just a moment. But I like verse 19, love the stranger, be kind to others, because you were once strangers as well. Well, again, I want to look at just a handful of passages here very quickly. We'll get to Galatians, to one of my favorite passages in just a moment. But I want to start in Philippians chapter 2, and I want us to read verses 3 and 4. And we could say so much about Philippians 2 and the first three or four verses. But just to give us kind of a snapshot view of what's going on here, let nothing, he says, let nothing, he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, this was written 2,000 years ago. And if we apply that today, it makes 2020 so much better. It made first century life better. And back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 19, Moses was saying, look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others or of strangers. Paul goes to great lengths to talk to the church of Galatia on this particular subject. And he spends virtually all of chapter 6, or at least a lot of chapter 6, 
And he says in verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he's deceiving himself. The idea is, is you have to look out for others because you cannot just live life with blinders on saying, I'm only going to be concerned about myself and I'm not going to ever have concern for someone else. Well, sure you can, but that doesn't make for a very meaningful life, does it? We'll drop down to verse 9, and we can spend a lot of time looking at the preceding verses uh, or the, in between. But in verse 9, he says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. This is an Old Testament teaching, the idea that others are your focus. And you make sure that their welfare comes before your own. Well, again, a non-Pauline passage takes us back to the account of Jesus and his life in Mark chapter 12 and verse 31, where Jesus says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Of course, talking about, number one, loving God and putting him first, which we'll get to in just a second, and then making sure that your neighbor is your priority. You know, if just people in the world would apply these principles, knowing that God has requirements, that obedience involves action, and that others are to be our focus, if the world would just subscribe to those three simple things... The world would be a better place. The world would be filled with more people who are at peace. And that's why we set the examples that we set so that others see what real Christianity is. My point this afternoon is that long before Christianity began, because it began with Christ, God was already laying the groundwork for it in what we call the Old Testament. Which brings us to the point that I, that I hinted at just a few seconds ago, and that is God must always be number one. We'll come back and read in Mark chapter 12 in just a moment. But you remember in Joshua chapter 24 and verse 15, as for me and as for my house, we will what? We will serve the Lord. There was no ambivalence. There was no wishy-washiness on the part of Joshua. He says, we are going to do what we are going to do. You can choose who you're going to serve, whether it be the gods on the other side of the river or in the past or the God of creation. But I'm telling you that I'm going to set the example and I'm going to do my very best to diligently set out to serve God Almighty. Go back to Mark chapter 12 where we read from just a second or two ago. One of the scribes came to Jesus, and having heard them, Jesus, the Sadducees, and others reasoning together, perceived that he had answered them well. He says, which is the first commandment of all? And then Jesus says in the text that you and I are probably familiar with, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind, with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And the second, as we read just a moment or so ago, is likened unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. 
Elsewhere, Jesus would say, on those two commandments, you can hang the law. You can take the entire law of Genesis to Malachi, take everything that God has ever said, and you, you break it down to those two things, love God first, and then love your neighbor as yourself, and you will, if you do those two things, you'll fulfill the law in every aspect. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, I love Matthew chapter 6 for a couple of different reasons, but Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 is where Jesus says you cannot serve God and mammon. No one can have two masters. And then he goes on and he says, don't worry about the things of this earth like your food or clothing or shelter because God who provides for the lilies of the field, God who provides for the sparrows, God who provides for every creature will also provide for you. He says, well, what I do want you to do is to make sure that my father is number one. In verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. God must always be number one. And then, if we do that, it lends itself and leads to the fifth and the final thing that is taught all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 10, and that is God will always provide prosperity. Now, you may say, wait a minute now, preacher. I've been living for God for a long time, and I've yet to become a multimillionaire. We know that in the world today that there are some who have hijacked the message of the gospel for their own selfish gain. Serving God does not mean you're going to make a lot of money. In fact, you may lose money serving God because you don't get the promotions that the guy who has drinks with the boss, he gets. You may not get a raise as often as you like. You may not make as much money as you like. You may not be as popular as you would like to be. But God says, I'll take care of you in other more important fundamental ways look if you would at verse 22 your fathers went down to egypt with 70 persons and now the lord your god has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude you know the fact is is they started out with very few and they ended up with a great many this is, as we just talked about on Wednesday evening in our Bible study and our introduction to Ezra, this is in many ways part of the threefold promise of land and nation and seed that had been made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 or 15 or 17 that our brother John had talked about in our Wednesday night class. I want to look at just one passage before we close out this afternoon, and that is Romans chapter 8 verses 37 through 39. These are beautiful words. Romans chapter 8, which is dead center of the book of Romans, uh, is one of the most powerful, positive, uplifting chapters in all of Scripture. It's a great place to go and read if you're ever discouraged. And one of the reasons that it is so encouraging, that it is so uplifting, is because of what is written in verse 37, where he says, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, nothing, absolutely nothing, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing separates us from God's love. Nothing gets in the way of God prospering those who serve him. That's something that is encouraging and that we should appreciate. That's something that was taught in the Old Testament, and that's something that is taught in the New Testament. It was true 3,000, 4,000 years ago and beyond. It was true 2,000 years ago, and it's true yet today. You know, I want to close with this notion that we've kind of hinted at throughout our study, and that is the Old Testament versus the New Testament. And some would teach that the Old Testament God is different than the New Testament God, and that, of course, is not the case at all, that the just God of the Old Testament is the just God of the New Testament, and the one who loved in the olden days is the one who loved in the more recent days of our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, I would argue that Deuteronomy chapter 10 is a perfect place to go where it provides us with a proof text that the two testaments, rather than being opposed to each other, are instead part of the continual nature of a God who has always sought to be clear with his expectations. The things that were taught in Deuteronomy 10, where God has requirements, obedience involves action, others are our focus, God is number one, and God provides prosperity, are the things that we teach out of the New Testament. You know, those five points that we made that we conclude with this afternoon, we could have made without ever reading Deuteronomy chapter 10 and just completely sticking to the New Testament. But isn't it beautiful that the Bible provides for us a rather concise and totally complete picture of all that God does require of us and wants us to be active in his service, putting others first, putting him number one, and then allowing us to be prospered by him. These are things that are important to be reminded of and things that we need to appreciate when we think about the study of God's word together. It's been good to study together this afternoon, and I hope that these things are helpful to you as they are to me. I often preach and say that the things that I find helpful to be reminded of are the things that I end up preaching. Chances are, if I need it, you need it as well. And if we can help you at the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ in some way by studying with you, maybe familiarizing yourself with the Bible, we are ready to study with you at any hour, any day. If you're ready to make a commitment to God because you realize that God does require something of you, then we welcome the opportunity to help you this afternoon. Go to our website, you can call us, you can email us, ask us at any time to help you 
and we'll be glad to do so. Thanks so much for watching today. May God continue to be a blessing to all of us in his service.